Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Joining us today is author Stephen Talty. Stephen Talty was born in Buffalo, New York, to parents who immigrated from County Clare, Ireland. He went to Bishop Timmon High School before attending Amherst College, where he graduated with a degree in English. After Amherst, he worked at the Miami Herald as a news clerk and a police reporter, then became a freelance writer in Dublin and New York, and he's written for the New York Times Magazine, Playboy, the Irish Times, and the Chicago Review, and many other publications. Talty now lives outside New York City with his wife and two children. Talty is the author of five nonfiction books, Mulatto America, about the mixing of black and white culture throughout American history, Empire of Blue Water, the story of the great pirate Captain Henry Morgan, The Illustrious Dead, about Napoleon's invasion of Russia and the typhus epidemic that doomed it, Escape from the Land of Snows, an account of the Dalai Lama's escape from Tibet in 1959, and Agent Garbo, the story of the greatest double agent of World War II, Juan Pujol. His first book of fiction, a crime novel called Black Irish, introduces the Harvard-educated detective Absalom Kearney and marks the beginning of a new crime series. He's also the co-author of the New York Times best-selling account, A Captain's Duty, with Captain Richard Phillips, the hero of the Alabama hijacking. The book, of course, was made into a film starring Tom Hanks. Stephen Talty has a new work of fiction slated for release this May called Hangman, a novel which brings back intrepid heroine Absalom Kearney, a driven police detective with a haunted past trying to make a difference in a troubled town. But that's not why we're talking to Stephen Talty today. Rather, it's his work of nonfiction, specifically his book, The Secret Agent in Search of America's Greatest World War II Spy, about millionaire oil mogul Eric Erickson. Welcome, Stephen Talty. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, Stephen, uh, sounds like you have had quite a career so far, and I'm going to be looking up many of these books that we've just mentioned and reading them myself. The reason we're here today is that our board chairman here at Northeast Public Radio, Ann Erickson, had a, I guess, great uncle or a distant uncle, who they referred to as uncle, who turns out to be the subject of your book. So tell us a little bit about him. Well, Eric Erickson was born in Brooklyn um, around 1898, son of Swedish parents who had emigrated to the U.S. looking for a better life. And he sort of grew up in a, a rough-and-tumble part of Brooklyn, went to Cornell, graduated, and went right into the oil industry. And this is basically around 1921 when the world's appetite for oil was just exploding. So he became part of this industry that was going to shape the 20th century. He went down to Texas he became a line walker and a roughneck. He checked the pipelines, make sure they were okay, and then graduated sort of to the executive ranks and got into sort of making deals. So he went to Yokohama. He actually went to Russia after the Russian Revolution and helped them build a refinery there. And later, of course, he sort of rubbed shoulders with the Nazis. So he had intimate contact with the two ideologies that shaped the 20th century, communism and fascism. So he was just a self-made man. He became a millionaire in the process. And before World War II, he was really living high in Stockholm in Sweden, his ancestral homeland. Uh, and he was a millionaire, had a beautiful apartment in the city, and was sort of living the life of his dreams. But then the, the war came along, of course, and really changed everything. So give us a sighting as to where he physically was residing at the time the stuff went down. Well, he was working for a Texas oil company, but he was the head of the uh, company in Sweden. So he spoke Swedish very well. He became an, a naturalized citizen. And, you know, he was living in Stockholm, the capital, an isolated but sort of thriving city, not really caught up in world politics at the time. But, of course, it was right next to Germany. And that really began to influence the course of its politics and its history as World War II began. So let me ask you this, Stephen. When we write books... We often, you know, spend so much time with the people we're writing about. I wrote about Mario Cuomo. You're writing this book about Eric Erickson. And after a while, we begin to see them as family. Did you like him? I did like him. You know, there were some discoveries along the way that kind of shocked me. The reason I sort of came across Eric Erickson, I was doing research for my other book on, on a guy named Agent Garbo. And I kept coming across all these spies that were Swedish and Bulgarian and English, and I'm like, where are the Americans? I wanted to sort of see if any American had played an important part in World War II in espionage. And I came across his name, and I found there was a memoir, actually sort of a, a novelized memoir that he'd written after the war. 
And in it, he said he sort of started working against the Nazis in 1939. But later in my research, I found it was 1942, and that he'd actually made millions off the Nazis, supplying them with oil, and basically helping the German war machine take over Europe. So that was really the crisis in confidence I had with Erickson. I really liked him as a person. But then I saw that he had been a war profiteer, really sort of a, a collaborator. And at that point, I really almost dropped the book. I didn't want to sort of glorify someone who had really helped with the beginning of the Nazi terror. Interesting. I sort of, the more I got into it, the more I saw that he was a self-made man. And self-made men often don't believe they have, they owe any loyalties or any sort of honor to any other system except themselves. And he was really of that mold. He was a guy who learned the business in Texas and just came of age with this ethos that you created yourself and you don't owe anyone else anything. So he believed that until 1942, and then it just became unbearable for him. His brother wrote him a letter from America saying, how can you help Hitler sort of, you know, destroy Europe? Uh, your two nephews are fighting in Europe, and you might be responsible for their deaths. So finally, his conscience overtook his his greed, and that sort of brought me back to Erickson as a human being and saw that he he did have a soul. He did sort of make a decision that could have cost him his life. And so that made up for me for his making millions off the Nazis. And he got a major award, the uh, Medal of Freedom with Bronze Palm from the United States. Right. That came later. But, of course, in Stockholm during the war, he was seen as a collaborator. His whole role with the Nazis required him to seem to be a Nazi. He hung a portrait of Hitler in his living room. And he meant he it. Would, in other words, this wasn't a put on. This was something he believed. No, no, no. I mean, in the beginning, he was... I don't think he ever was fond of the Nazis. I think he was fine with making money off of them. Mm -hmm. He saw it as, you know, he saw the oil industry as amoral, which it really is. I mean, oil flows to the highest price. And so he said, if I'm not going to do it, somebody else will. Why don't I make the millions? But then the, he hooked up with the OSS. They had a, a Finnish-American head of bureau in Stockholm. And they had a discussion. He agreed to go to work for the OSS, which, of course, was the forerunner to the CIA, and tried to sort of infiltrate the German oil industry, which was really the key to its war machine. I mean, the planes and the tanks, sure. nothing ran without oil. And he was well positioned to sort of infiltrate it. So at that point, he became sort of a super Nazi. And this was really an act. He hung the portrait mm. of Hitler in, in the wall. He would go to restaurants and hang out with the sort of German colony in Stockholm and give the Hitler salute. His best friend was a Jewish guy, a former Olympic medal winner. And he sort of had to break off that relationship because no Nazi could be seen with a Jew in Stockholm. So he really changed his life and became this other person. His wife was in and out of mental asylums, partly because of the pressure of being ostracized by her old friends and family. So he really paid an enormous emotional price in the beginning of the war for becoming what everyone would thought was a fascist. So the transition becomes crucial for us to understand this guy, Eric Erickson. In other words, you seem to indicate, anyway, that he decided to make a change. But when you talk about his meeting with the OSS, the question is, who was pushing whom? It's a good question. You know, he was a smart guy. Maybe he saw the tides of the war turning. Of course, in 1942, America had just joined the war. Maybe he said, you know, I can't be on the side of Germany. They're going to lose. But there's a memo in the OSS files down in Maryland from the, his handler, the guy who ran him, and he said that he believed his change of heart was sincere. Because up until 1942, no Americans were really fighting in the war. And then we had Operation Torch in North Africa, and Americans started to die. And also his brother wrote him this very stinging letter saying, you know, you're no longer my brother because of what you're doing. So I do think that the change was heartfelt. And he certainly risked his life after. I mean, he traveled to Germany in 1943 and 1944 and had the Gestapo revealed who he was, that he was working for the OSS, you know, he would have been a dead man. So I think if he didn't have that commitment, he wouldn't have taken those enormous risks. So there's a story of this execution of this woman when they pull her in, and they execute her, and they make him watch it. What was that about? Well, I first came across that in the, the book The Counterfeit Traitor, which he wrote after the war, and I thought, okay, he just made this up. This is ridiculous, mm -hmm. because it just seems so far-fetched. But he, it's in his files that he came across this German spy, very beautiful, from a family that was opposed to Nazism. Her name was Anna-Marie Freudenreich. And they fell in love, and he would go and, and meet her. There are letters from her in, in the files talking about the gifts he brought her. And so they were both providing information on the Nazis. They would go to parties. They were both social creatures. And they would meet with the elite and dance with them. And Erickson was famous for bringing gifts of, like, silk stockings and things like that and whiskey to the Nazi wives. And that sort of got the husbands, uh, you know, to play ball with him. 
But eventually she was discovered and she was taken to Moabit prison in Berlin. And Erickson was taken there for a viewing. He didn't know what was going on, but he was brought into a chamber with about 30 or 40 other people. And they marched out these prisoners to a gallows. And the first set of prisoners were male and he didn't know any of them. And he thought he was scot-free. But the second group was female and he recognized Anne-Marie. And he thought, I'm a dead man because obviously the Gestapo has tortured her and they've got a name and they're just sort of watching my reaction to confirm that I was you know, involved with her. But he was able to be stoic. He didn't express any emotion. And he actually watched his lover die on the gallows. And then he was let go, knowing that the Gestapo was watching him, suspicious of him, but eventually got out of Germany and was able to sort of report about the oil factories in Germany. So he continued to do his job, even though you know he'd lost a great part of his life. And what did he do exactly? I mean, how did it work? His prime objective with the synthetic oil factories. Germany had very few natural oil resources of its own. Mm. And one of the reasons it invaded the Middle East and invaded Russia and Romania was to get at their oil fields because they needed you know enormous quantities of oil to run the army and the air force. But they also had scientists working on this thing called synthetic oil, which was you know a chemical compound that could be used in trucks and planes. And the Germans were the most advanced in the world in producing it. And they produced them at these plants and refineries scattered all over Germany. And that was really Ericsson's task, to go and find these factories and hand over the coordinates to Allied Bomber Command so they could be taken out and the German war machine would run dry. So that's what he was risking his life to do, to find these plants and help destroy them. As he identified them, did you ever have the feeling that he must have known that if the bombers kept finding these places, they were going to be looking for somebody who was giving them away? Well, the Allies had several ways of finding these factories. They had, you know, surveillance flights flying over. But he did something very clever. What he did was he involved the Nazis in the profits from these businesses that he was trying to set up with them. He proposed a factory in Sweden, a refinery that would be untouchable by Allied planes. And he said, we're going to give you a cut of all the profits from that, from that factory. And that will be there after the war, no matter who wins the war. So he was... He was getting involved personally and in a business sense with the Germans, so their interests were his interests. So I guess he did know that somebody was looking for them. He was certainly paranoid in Berlin when he was staying in the hotels, waiting for meetings with Himmler and other people, always felt he was being watched. But he felt that the Germans wouldn't know that there was an insider because they could believe that surveillance planes were finding these factories and destroying them. We're talking with Stephen Talty, author of The Secret Agent in Search of America's Greatest World War II Spy. Let me ask you this, Stephen. He made a lot of money first, then he switched over, but he was still making money, right? Yeah, he still was. He was finding Mexican oil, and he was finding it from all over the world, really, to ship to Germany. But after the war, you know, there was an embargo, and he was placed on the blacklist, actually, because he was doing business with the Germans. Yeah, yeah. So actually to survive as a businessman, in Stockholm in 1940, 1941, cooperating with the Nazis was actually seen as a patriotic act because Sweden had not been invaded, and Hitler had made it clear that the only reason it hadn't been invaded because it was cooperating. It, it allowed shipment of iron ore across its northern borders. It provided ball bearings, and it provided oil. So once those things stopped, the, the Swedish people knew that there would be an invasion. So some people actually approved of what Ericsson was doing. They saw it as a way of holding off Hitler. So he had to do these business deals to remain credible. And yeah, he definitely made money off it. He was a smart guy. But he was also, had he been caught, he would have lost his life. So you can say he was making money, but he was risking his life. But you also mentioned earlier that the wife was in and out of mental institutions because people didn't want to associate with them because they were consorting with the Nazis. So, um, you know, your explanation is good about Sweden, but one wonders whether it, there wasn't a sort of schizophrenia going on. There was. There was definitely a pro-Allied camp and a pro-Nazi camp in Stockholm. And there was a very, you know, a very clear line between the two. It was what, what groups you hung out with Erickson joined the, the German Chamber of Commerce in um, Stockholm that was Nazi-controlled. So he was sort of stating, you know, I'm with Hitler and, and the Hitlerites. And he would go to his favorite restaurants in Stockholm with his mm. wife, a well-known couple. You know, he was, he was a, a wheeler dealer in Stockholm. And people would actually get up and walk away from the tables if they bordered the one that Erickson was sitting at. So old friends turned away, and he knew that was going to happen, and he knew that there was going to be a price he was going to pay. One thing I sort of question about him is he never told his wife that it was all an act. 
he never told her it was a charade for mm. the benefit of the Allies. And I think that, who knows, that could have helped her with the ostracism that she was experiencing and the, the mental anguish. But he felt it was unsafe. And so he had to sort of let her suffer. And you could say that he really lost the two most important women in his life. He lost his wife. They divorced in 1949. Um, how much of that was natural and how much, how much of that was the war? Do we have any idea why they divorced? We don't. We don't know. The files I found in the Swedish National Archives in Stockholm have almost all his personal letter, letters and business letters, but he never really addresses the divorce. Um, I think it was very painful for him, and he remarried later. But, yeah, his wife Elsa was definitely a casualty of that, of his mission. He was a sort of handsome figure, wasn't he? He was. He played football at Cornell. It looked like he had his nose broken in later photographs, so I don't know if that happened in the oil fields of Texas or playing Harvard in a bowl game with Cornell. But, yeah, he was a rugged-looking guy, like six feet tall, spoke Japanese, Swedish, English, German. Really sort of one of these characters that he, he regularly played the, the casinos at Monaco, rubbed elbows with, like, Hollywood studio owners, rode horses, kept a stable of, of beautiful horses. So he had this fabulous life, but it was all sort of built on millions that were, you know, it was kind of blood money because a lot of it came from Germany in the pre-war period, and I think he knew that. You mentioned Himmler. Let's talk about that relationship. Right. Himmler was really the second most powerful man in Germany at the time and started to get the oil contracts that would give him what, – what Erickson was really seeking was to be able to, – to have a reason to travel all across Germany and inspect these synthetic oil plants because um, then he could talk about which ones were more productive. He could put them on a map for Allied Bomber Command. Um, but – in Germany at the time, of course, if you were an American, you always had a Gestapo ex escort, um, and you were never allowed to sort of travel the country freely. So he had to go to Himmler to sort of look for permission and look for a reason, and that meant oil contracts. But there were many people contending for those contracts. So he actually got a meeting with Himmler, describes it very well in his book. Himmler was actually getting a manicure at the time when he walked in. And Erickson was really sort of a man's man. He thought this was effeminate. He was actually offended, but had to hide that and had a really pleasant discussion with Himmler, who he always thought was a very smart guy. He got along famously with him. And he started to charm Himmler into giving him these oil contracts. And it took many months, but he eventually did get these big contracts and allowed him to sort of travel the country and start finding these hidden plants and, and giving the coordinates to the Allied bombers. Did he have to bribe Himmler, do you think? I mean, did he have to give anything back to Himmler? Well, I think he definitely included Himmler on this deal for the Swedish oil refinery, which mm -hmm. was going to be a, a huge money deal. And he cut him in and he cut in his top lieutenants. And I think he sensed that Himmler wasn't the ideologue that some of the other people in the Nazi hierarchy mm -hmm. was and was perhaps thinking post-war, what am I going to do? I mean, if Germany is shattered, where, how am I going to support my family and things like that? So he did provide a bribe in the profit sharing with the company. Of course, that oil refinery didn't exist. He created that out of whole cloth. He created an agreement, had these Swedish vice presidents of banks sign it. He forged those signatures himself. So he was creating this fiction to sort of draw in the Germans and was really coming all, all out of his own brain. When we look at these kinds of stories, and I find myself doing this all the time. My wife is a Holocaust scholar, you know, and it turns out that a lot of people claim that they had hidden Jewish families in their third floor of their houses. You know, the Nazis were not nice people, and if they found out any of that stuff, they'd kill you. So, you know, one wonders in terms of historiography whether this was much on your mind, Stephen Talty, as you went about all of this. How do you figure out whether this was BS or whether it was for real? Right. I definitely found out things that were BS. What I did was compared the narrative from his book that he wrote after the war with these hundreds and hundreds of pages of files in the Swedish archives where he really revealed the truth of what happened. And at one point, there are letters between him and Alexander Klein, who's the author of the book he wrote. And in it, he admits some things in the story are false. There's a story in the book about finding that he's being trailed by a Gestapo agent and tracking him to a phone booth and taking a knife and killing him. And in it, you know, it's, it's a Hollywood touch. And in, in his correspondence, he admits that he and Klein just made that up to boost sales. So without these archives in Stockholm, I would not have been able to write the book, The Secret Agent, because all we had really were myths. And like you said, a lot of people after the war kind of shined up their images and changed their motives. I think the good thing about Erickson was that 
when he did that, he in his personal correspondence, he admitted it. Um, mm. In in the book and in the movie, there was a movie starring William Holden. I want to talk about that. William Holden, one of right. my favorite actors of all times. But I wanted to talk about that. Maybe we could go there just for a little diversion and tell us about whether when you saw the movie, you said, this is right, this is the way it was, or you say, this is uh, nonsense. Uh, no, the movie is about 90% fiction. Um, I think the book, after I added everything up, I would say is 80 to 85% true. And the rest I can fill in with his correspondence. But Hollywood tends to sort of just take things apart. And yeah, it, it's full of ridiculous stories and things that never happened. You know, it's a fun movie and it sort of has some good atmosphere that makes you think of Berlin in 1944. And Holden is always good. Lily Palmer plays his wife and they're both very good. But the story itself is almost concocted out of, you know, whole cloth. Mm. I saw a picture of Holden standing next to him, Eric Erickson. They didn't look too much alike. No, um, but, yeah, Erickson went to the set when they were filming it, and he charmed Holden so much so that he thought, uh, he said to the Life magazine, he said, maybe Erickson should play me in my life because the guy is just a, a charmer. He was a guy who could sort of walk into a room and in 10 minutes have everyone feeling that he was his, their best friend. But if you see the movie, the movie is fun, but... They took such liberties with the period and with what really happened that you can't depend on it at all for sort of history. So if anybody wants the movie, the name of the movie is? The Counterfeit Trader, the same as the book. Counterfeit Trader. Let's talk a little bit about those archives. They're very interesting to me that they got all that information. How did they get it? Well, it was really his personal letters. It was his personal archive that he kept for years. And when he died in 1983, his second wife feeling, I guess, that the real story had never been told, donated them to the Swedish National Archives. And I just happened to find them when doing research on Ericsson, flew over there and uh, started going through them. And there were about 10 big binders of stuff. And he was sort of a pack rat. He, he saved everything. So we have pictures of Anna Marie, the German agent that he loved and actually watched die. And I mean, going through those archives, it really made it seem sort of real for me because on the back of one it's written executed Moabit prison uh, on the uh, on the back of a picture of Anne Marie and there's also uh, a quote in in the correspondence where he says if she were alive today she'd be my wife so that's really where you find the real Erickson Um, his business ledgers show you exactly how, how much he made from the Nazis where the oil was coming from where it was going and it sort of gives you the full portrait of a guy who's operating in a very complex historical moment um, and but has to make a choice at a certain point which side he's on. Mm. How do you explain the award which came later, as you point out, the citation for the Medal of Freedom that he got? You know, this whole business of what happened after the war, you make a point, others have, that Eisenhower was not about to start holding people responsible for what had been done Werner von Braun comes over here, immortalized by Tom Lehrer. You know, I just make them go up. Who cares where they come down? It's not my department, <laughs> says Werner von Braun. But he killed a lot of people, and yet we honored him, and he became the head of the space program. What do you make of all of that? You know, it's it's a tough world. I think as soon as the war was over, we started pivoting to look at the Soviets. So sure. it became a question almost of the next war. Who's going to fight the next war with us? So. Yeah, I think morally we were compromised in bringing a lot of those scientists over, nuclear scientists, everybody really that could help us, rocket scientists, of course. I think Erickson was a little different because he really made his break in 1942, not 1945 after the war was over. Mm-hmm. So he sort of invested in the Allied cause just in time, I think, to really be considered a true, you know, a true believer in what he was fighting for. There's a famous story um, – you know he was he was really despised in Stockholm for the entirety of the war, except by the the pro German elite, and the Scandinavians and the Americans wanted to sort of honor him, so they had a luncheon right after the uh, after the armistice was signed, and he and Prince Carl, who we have to get to later, um, Prince Carl was a a member of the Swedish royal family who sort of was his ally in this whole mission. There were two seats left open with all these um, you know so- socialites and journalists. And the American ambassador stood up and said, we're here to honor two people today. And Erickson and Prince Carl walk out. And the whole room was totally shocked because they believed these guys were betrayers of the cause and were going to end up in prison. So um, I think what's good about Erickson is that people on the ground, people who knew the situation, 
the OSS in Stockholm, the American Embassy in Stockholm, they were the, the first people to really recognize his contribution. It wasn't coming from Washington. It wasn't really political. It was people on the ground who knew the situation. So I think his contribution was authentic, and it wasn't really kind of a PR move. So how did that rehabilitation go in terms of the way in which people perceived him? Did they say, oh, you know, is it an overnight thing, or did it take some people a long time to say, I don't believe this? Um, it took Americans a long time to sort of get to know Erickson and get to know his story. There was a piece in the New York Times followed by a piece in the Reader's Digest. The movie doesn't come out until 1963. The book is, I think, 1958. So it's many years after, and there is, I think, a sense that we wanted to find people who had acted honorably during the war. We were desperate for that. And, and to find Americans who did that was a bonus. So I do think part of his rehabilitation was Americans searching for, you know, people who had Anne Frank and things like that. You know, we always want mm. to find um, some kind of positive actor in these hugely negative situations. Um, and he became one of those people. I think in 1963, he was probably the most famous living spy in the world. And he came and did a publicity tour in America and gave speeches at the Cornell Club. But again, in the personal letters, you get to see the real Erickson. He, uh, there's one letter in that, that I found really fascinating. He'd grown up, of course, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, which had turned into sort of a Caribbean community after he left it. And um, he wrote the homeowner, who was a Jamaican immigrant, saying, can I come and see my old home? And the guy was very gracious and said, of course, come any time. And in the files is a letter from Erickson who, who writes, you know, thank you for being so gracious. Um, you mentioned when we spoke on the phone that you're, you were from Jamaica and not part of the original Swedish stock of the neighborhood. I want you to know that I, I care nothing for color. It's only what a man does and how he carries himself that matters to me. And in 1963, you know, that was sort of an, you know, that was a fairly rare sentiment. And the fact that he um, did this publicly, took photos with the man, I do think shows that he was, you know, he had a, a conscience about him that uh, that he didn't always reveal publicly. I mean, publicly he was the playboy, the millionaire, the World War II hero, you know, but in private he had a, a certain decency, I think. We're talking to Stephen Talty, author of The Secret Agent in Search of America's Greatest World War II Spy. So, um, Stephen, I guess the next issue that I want to do is a hint you just gave us. Let's go to Prince Carl and what that relationship was and how that developed. Right. In 1942, when the OSS and Ericsson were cooking up the scheme to sort of infiltrate the German oil industry, they realized that Ericsson himself might not be enough, that they, they needed an ally um, to get him into Berlin and to sort of get him contacts. And he was an interesting guy. He was fifth in line to the throne, um, the black sheep of the Swedish royal family. Um, he was someone who he was sort of like King Edward in Britain. He'd lost his path to the throne through romance. He um, fell in love with a commoner, a divorcee, married her, and the royal family kind of washed their hands of him. Um, you just can't do that and, and be king of Sweden. So what's interesting about Prince Carl is I, I don't think someone who was really a a member in good standing of the royal family would have gotten involved in a, an anti-Nazi plot. It would have just been too risky for them. But Prince Carl was sort of on the outs. He was eccentric. He was always adventurous. And so he agreed with Erickson to sort of be his his royal cover for the whole mission. He would go with him to Germany. He found, he and, and Erickson found that the Germans just loved royalty. A lot of them felt that they'd come from humble backgrounds. They were insecure in these positions of power. And when someone like Prince Carl hung out with them at a restaurant and became their friend, they were, you know, besotted. They, they loved this guy. They loved this glamour that he gave them. And it really helped Erickson prove his, his pedigree. So the two of them really were essential in getting Erickson into the German high command, getting him into the, the Berlin social scene. And that led to the oil contracts and to the mission. Maybe I'm slow, but I want to understand this. Carl was being run by the OSS or, or independent? Um, no, he was definitely cooperating with them. Erickson was the agent. I don't think Carl formally ever sort of signed up with the OSS or, or agreed to anything, you know, formally. But he was definitely involved in the, in the mission. And he was, you know, Erickson was a charming guy. He, he had a lot of women around him. 
and he wanted to be with Eric Erickson. But um, he knew what he was doing. He knew that if he was found out that there would be you know grave consequences for him. He was actually once arrested in Berlin when they went on a trip to try and get these oil contracts. He he was at a friend's house and he was listening to the BBC, which was illegal at the time right, right, right. in Germany. Once the war was declared, all British stations were illegal. So the Gestapo rounded him up and put him into prison, and Erickson barely got him out. So Prince Carl was really in it up to the hilt and really provided cover for Eric Erickson. And what happened to Prince Carl after the war? He was recognized right alongside of um, Eric Erickson. When you go through the archives, there are all these letters. He got a cut of the profits from the book and the movie. Erickson insisted on that. Afterwards, he sort of became one of these figures at parties in Monaco or in Stockholm or in London. He was a royal, but he wasn't really a royal. So he married twice more. The last one was to a maid, which really completed his downfall in sort of the eyes of um, you know, high society in Europe. But he just became this sort of eccentric royal figure, a, a prince who was on the outs with the royal family. But I was always proud of his sort of anti-Nazi mission, that, that thing that sort of redeemed him, I think, was uh, what he did for the Allies in 1942, 1945. You mentioned Himmler. What other luminaries of the party, the Nazi party, did Erickson write about or did he talk about? Um, there's one great story where he's first going to Berlin to sort of um, start the mission, and he's pulled off the plane by Swedish uh, border agents, and they sort of make a public show of dressing him down and treating him really roughly. And he gets back on the plane, goes to Berlin, comes back to Stockholm and asks the OSS what happened. And they said the pilot on the plane was a nephew of Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe. Mm. So we wanted to show that you were in uh, in bad odor in Stockholm. They, we knew that everyone knew you were working for the Nazis and that you were paying a price for that. And he's like, well, why didn't you tell me this? And he's like, well, they said, you know, you, you wouldn't have the same reaction. We had to show that you were offended and you were paying a price for working for the Nazis. So – Goering is someone who he um, he knew socially. He would eat with him in Berlin. He went to his estate, his country estate, which was enormous and impressive. And he, you know, he did this all really through social contacts. He was really an imposter who lived on his charm. So um, Goering and Himmler were the two big figures that he uh, that he encountered and that he coaxed into to becoming allies, basically. Now Goering is portrayed post-war, you know, as a, a really sort of buffoonish fellow. Was he? I don't think he was. I mean, I think he had um, – he was a flamboyant individual. I mean, he, he had all these titles like um, Grant Forrester and things like that, and he saw himself in really inflated terms. But he was really a power player within the Nazi hierarchy. The Luftwaffe, of course, was essential to the, the expansionist plans of Hitler. Um, and it was really – at the end of the war that you saw in the Luftwaffe a lot of what Erickson did. During D-Day, they just didn't have the oil and the gas, the aviation mm -hmm. fuel, to go and bomb those those roads leading into Brittany and things like that. They didn't have the, um, the gas for the bombers to continue pounding um, Allied cities. So it's really when you see the stalled tanks and the, and the planes on the airfields that you see what Erickson's contribution and how huge it was. Because all those planes, all those tanks, all those transport trucks needed synthetic fuel to run. And Ericsson was really key in, uh, in denying that to the Germans. So how, after the war, considering the relationship of the Swedes and the Germans, how did it go? I mean, what, how would one play that? Uh, that's not something I really got into too much in the book. I mean, I really mm -hmm. follow Ericsson sure. after the war. Um, you know, I know that the Swedes were very proud of what they did during the war, and uh, there's a story of how they protected, I think it was about four to 5,000 Jews who were in danger of um, being sent to the concentration camps. Um, but there is also a sense, I, I traveled to Stockholm and I met with uh, probably the most famous Swedish World War II historian. We talked about this period. And, you know, there's an acknowledgement that there, were, there was a strong pro-Nazi faction in Stockholm. So that's... That's the part they don't want to remember. That's the part that's embarrassing to them. Um, but that was sort of essential to what Erickson did. If if he was a lone voice saying, you know, I want to work with the Nazis, it wouldn't have worked. He would have been, you know, he would have been under too much suspicion. But because it was a really healthy German community in, in Stockholm, it really sort of 
gave him a natural environment to work in. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a complicated history after the war. But Erickson is something the Swedes can hold on to as saying, you know, we played our part. Who was Herr Ludwig, who was the um, commercial attache in the German legation? That was a big problem for him, wasn't it? Yeah, Ludwig was someone who doubted his credentials. Said at one point, he said to Erickson, "This would be one when you hear the dark music in the movie." When <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right, right. he was the. Uh, I'm not sure if he wore a monocle in the movie, yeah. but he should have. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he said to Erickson, "You know, you're an American, and you always will be." And he had to sort of get around Ludwig to get to the people in Berlin who were going to make the decisions on the oil contracts. So, yeah, not everyone believed him, and there were points where he believed that. Uh, especially the Gestapo was watching him in Berlin. And he he later said to Alexander Klein in one of the letters, before I do this again, I'm going to see a psychoanalyst because he felt an enormous amount of pressure and paranoia that he was going to be discovered and the whole thing was going to go up in smoke. Now, that's interesting because one wonders whether or not he was a little nuts. Well, you know, I think when you look at the Texas oil, Texas oil industry and the oil industry in general, it, it it attracts people who have a high tolerance for risk. Certainly, Erickson saw a lot of people make fortunes and then lose those fortunes. So he was somebody who's always, I mean, he left his home country at the age of about 23, went to Yokohama, went to Baku, Russia. So he had a high tolerance for things that other people would find intolerable. Um, someone once suggested, if we have any sort of knowledge of his political views, was he's one of these people who, you know, was active in the German Bund in America and was really secretly pro-German. I wasn't able to find any evidence of that mm. in the archives. So, yeah, I, I think he was just one of these people who can take a lot of pressure, and and you needed to, to to do what he did. So, what about the Jews? He had to give up his friendship, as you have indicated, uh, with his probably his best friend, and he had to, in order to get over with the with the Nazis, he had to make a show of that. What were his real feelings? Do we know that about the Jewish population? Number one and number two, do we know whether these two guys ever reconciled? Oh, absolutely, they reconciled. There are letters between them in the uh, in the archives, and after the war, he traveled with America uh, with this guy Max, who was his best friend. They went to Monaco, gambled together. It, their friendship took off where it left off, um, and I think Max understood that he was playing a part. He never really addresses the wider sort of Jewish question in his personal correspondence. Um, and what's interesting, actually, is that he has some sympathy for the ordinary Germans. Um, there's a letter that he wrote to Allied Bomber Command. He was on a train. I'm forgetting the location he was at, but he was on a, a civilian train just traveling from one factory to another. And it was strafed by uh, Allied uh, fighters, and five people died. He watched them, you know, bleed to death on the train. And he wrote a letter saying, you're embittering the German public. You know, these people have nothing to do with the war effort. You know, hit the supply trains by all means, you know, bomb them out of existence. But this achieved nothing. And, um, he, you know, he, in his letters, he talks about befriending minor Nazi officials, playing with their children, charming their wives, and... He saw them as human beings, so he definitely met good Nazis and he met bad Nazis, and he tried to sort of get the the high command on the Allies to sort of make a, a distinction between noncombatants and combatants, um, which, I mean, there were very few Americans in Berlin in 1944, so just reading those letters is such a rare glimpse into a world we don't get to see through American eyes, so it was really interesting that he, he recorded those feelings. Why don't you tell everybody how they can read the book? You go online, and what do you do? Um, it's only available on Amazon.com, so um, it's an Amazon book. So you have to go to Amazon and just write Secret Agent uh, Talty, T-A-L-T-Y, and it'll pop up. That's really the only way to get it. It's an e-book. It's called a, a Kindle single, so it's actually one of these shorter books that they're doing. It's about 60 pages, um, and it goes for two ninety nine. So that's really the only way to get it. Sounds like a bargain. Absolutely. Talk to me about the famous meal where he goes to the big refinery and the managing director asks him to stay, and then he finds it hard to decline, and then there was an Allied bomber arrival at the very place where he's eating dinner. His fault. Right. Right. He never knew when the planes that he was basically directing towards these factories were going to arrive, so he had to keep traveling and find new factories and, and sort of 
visit the factories that had been bombed and see if they'd been put out of commission. So he was in Stuttgart at a Mercedes-Benz factory, which produced troop transports and jeeps and things like that. And he was meeting with the managing director to see what they needed in terms of oil. But Albert Speer's people came to inspect the factory. Speer was the head of the armaments and basically the the Ministry of Industry. So some some people who had higher rank than Erickson showed up, and he had to sit and wait for hours and hours. And to make up for that, the managing director said, come have dinner with me. So they were having dinner in his office in the factory, having beer. And Erickson was famous for bringing along gifts. So he had cigarettes and, and whiskey and actually with cigars in this case. And they lit up the cigars, and all of a sudden they heard bombers coming in the in the sky and they had to go down into the uh, had a, a bomb subsection of the factory and the bomb started to hit and you know things were exploding above his head he's like my god i'm gonna i'm gonna die by the own by the bombers that i've sent you know to kill this factory so that was one of his probably closest brush with allied bomber command but to him the real worry was the ss and the gestapo which he always thought were especially after Anne maria got killed that um that they were on his trail were they? There's no evidence that they were, except for that audience that he was invited to at, at Moabit Prison. Yeah, why would they do that if they didn't suspect them? Exactly. And he talks about SS agents walking up and down the aisles, inspecting the, the faces of people there. So perhaps the people, perhaps the um, Gestapo just wanted to test the loyalty of people that were under suspicion. So that was really the main indicator that he wasn't 100% trusted in Berlin. So the Nazis and the Germans were responsible for a lot of science. The jet plane, you know, the the rest of the stuff that they came up with, this attempt at synthetic oil, which we have now developed, but it's taken a long, long time. What was it in the German ethos that you were able to see through his eyes that came up with all that stuff? Well, I think it began with scarcity. They had very few resources of their own, just like why did Japan hit Pearl Harbor? They felt they were being sure. shut out of markets um, that things that were essential to their survival were being taken away from them. So Hitler um, didn't know that when he started up? Well, he uh, he was looking at the Romanian oil fields. But, of course, later in the war, Stalin was able to push them out of Romania, away from those oil fields. And the science became much more important. So, you know, there was a strong tradition in chemistry in Germany. You had probably the world's biggest chemical uh, maker, Farben, was there. So they had a tradition of being able to produce these things. And what's interesting that I found in, not in the archives, but in, in looking at American records, was that after the war, the State Department sent a special team of oil executives, scientists, to look to find out what the Germans had achieved in synthetic oil production, because that was sort of one of the holy grails of, of industry mm -hmm. at that time. They wanted to find out, they wanted to find a, an irreplaceable, inexhaustible supply of oil. And they got there, and they sort of followed Erickson's path to these different factories, and they found that Germany was probably 25 years ahead of America and the rest of the West in developing these oils. Because America, that oil that you put into your engine today, didn't exist in 1945. So they, they were astonished at how far the Germans had gotten. And they actually brought that technology back and opened a factory in, uh, I believe it was Missouri, right on the banks of the Mississippi, which was a synthetic oil facility, the first in America. The price of it was slightly higher, and big oil hated the idea of the government controlling the next sort of future of uh, of oil supply in America. So after a few years, the, the plant was shut down. It couldn't compete with the new discoveries in the Middle East, that cheap oil. is something that really sort of died in childbirth, that idea that we could, out of chemicals, produce uh, an inexhaustible supply of oil and gas. Is there any line that you've been able to establish that either Hitler knew of Ericsson's work or knew him or met him or, or that in some way there was a connection? I've never been able to establish that Hitler knew Erickson's name. Certainly, they traveled in the same circles socially. Erickson was at a lot of the parties and the dinners in Berlin that Hitler might have been at. But no, I was never able to have them side by side at a dinner table or anything like that. In the beginning, you said you sort of ended up liking him. How come? It's a good question. You know, I think he committed a great sin at the beginning of the war. He was um, knowingly helping the Nazis to crush Poland and take over France. And you have to remember 1942 is how many years after Kristallnacht? I mean, he knew who the Nazis were, and he, yet he was still working with them. He was buying a, a great apartment in Stockholm from them. So I thought he, that he had a great deal to sort of atone for. And then in the OSS records, I found that 
when he went to the OSS and volunteered to work for them, they suggested he stay in Stockholm and just sort of use his contacts there. And he insisted really on going into Germany. And I think that he he felt his penance had to be as large as his sin. So that's what I admired about him. He didn't try to sort of get off scot-free. He didn't try to you know weasel his weight out of what he'd done. He'd really stood up and you know, stood up to it like a man and said, okay, I've, I've done this enormous thing. I've helped the, the Nazis. Now I want to inflict an equal amount of damage on them. So I found that impressive. There's also in the Swedish archives, there's, there are interviews with him that uh, Swedish public TV did. And he's just a charming guy. I mean, I, I keep coming back to that word charm, but that's really what got him through. And I just found myself liking him personally. What's your own personal background, Stephen? Well, like Erickson, I'm the son of immigrants. My parents came from Ireland, and I kind of related to that as well. I mean, he was a guy who grew up pretty much with nothing, didn't have a lot of money to go to college and things like that. So our trajectory in the beginning was sort of similar. I went into journalism. He went into oil. But basically, I've been writing since I got out of college. I went to the Miami Herald. I was a reporter there and a news clerk and freelanced and moved to Dublin to sort of uh, see what where my parents had come from and then just started writing nonfiction books about Individuals like Erickson, people um, who mm. face great odds in at a certain moment in history and manage to achieve interesting and, and palpable things. So he's sort of one in the line of five or six individuals that I've written about who have managed to do that. Do you think uh, that if you – and I, I hope you understand. I mean this really respectfully and I'm just probing – that if you had been Jewish, you might feel differently about the guy? I think I would be a little more conflicted about it, um, but I have, you know, I have to recognize that Erickson definitely ended the war early. I mean, when you read all those accounts mm-hmm. in 1945, the Battle of the Bulge, or even D-Day, when they're unable to bring up their reserves because they have no fuel for the tanks, you know, I think the concentration camps would have run longer, the Nazis would have been in power longer, they would have done far more damage. So mm. I don't know that I would have the personal affection for Erickson that I do, but I'd have to recognize his achievement. Now, the Irish during the war weren't particularly in love with the Allies and because of, you know, their issues with Great Britain. And how does that figure in your personal narrative or perspective? Yeah, that's interesting. My dad is very sympathetic to the Republican cause. Right. Um, I think his, his father did uh, a few things for the IRA in his time. But my dad came to America, and I think within six months he was drafted into the Army and fought in Korea. So, yeah, that's something that is interesting to me historically because— um, you find that people like the FBI watching Irish um, uh, immigrants to America just like they watched the Japanese and the Germans because they were so anti-British. Um, I never really experienced that growing up. But, uh, you know, definitely my dad's service is something we're proud of and I've always been sort of fascinated by by the military. Well, our board chairman, I'm sure you've spoken with her, Ann Erickson, has a great feeling about this guy. You know, they were quite proud of him. And, you know, it's interesting to see how what many people now would not know about becomes important in some people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, they didn't know about these archives. The, the Erickson family didn't know about the archives. So all they had were these sort of Hollywood depictions of him. So I think Anne and her brother are going to go over to uh, Stockholm this summer and actually go through the archives, see his handwriting, see his photographs. And I think that's going to be just amazing for them to actually meet the real person that they never really got to to know in real life. Who's your most famous relative? My most famous relative? I don't have that many. Um, no, I, I don't have anyone who, who anyone would recognize. <laughs> uh, my, fam- my claim to fame is that I actually got to meet Jackie Onassis. And when you come from a an Irish Catholic family to meet JFK's sure. wife is really the height of fame. So, and where did that happen? I worked. My first job out of college was at Doubleday Books, and she was an editor there. I was oh, a lowly yeah. assistant, but she was lovely. She, you know, she had a five minute conversation with me, and and was just really had the voice of like a sixteen year old high school student. Really charming woman. And uh, did she shake your hand? Absolutely. Did she you did. wash it? Uh, did you ever watch <laughs> I still haven't, 35 years later. <laughs> that, that's fascinating. The uh, idea that one becomes an author, one spends enormous amounts of time on a single subject. You start writing when you get up in the morning and you're with it during the day and you're thinking about it because you can't fall asleep and during all of that time. Is it hard to remain objective? Um, 
Yeah, there is a tendency definitely to fall in love to to want to like your subject. I think if I hadn't found out these other facts about Erickson, I would have dropped him. Though I think there's certain there's certain lines that you can't cross. Mm. Um, so, but what's sort of been interesting for me is that the afterlife of this book, because I was unable to find any of Erickson's family in America until the book came out, and I heard from Anne, and now we're sort of both investigating and trying to find out the truth about his life. So. The next step is really finding Anna Marie, um, who we know very little about. We we don't know where she was buried or anything like that. So if there are any Freudenreichs out there, I'd love to hear from them. Interesting, interesting. Well, it's been a delight. And we've been talking with Stephen Talty, author of The Secret Agent in Search of America's Greatest World War II Spy. It's available on Amazon if you want to go there. Just put in Talty and maybe spy. I'm Alan Chartok. And thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, It's really great to have you spend all this time with us. We're very grateful for it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.